Hey everyone, you're listening to The Vent Podcast, your source for market insights, wine industry news, and updates on our current collections. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady. I lead investor relations at Vent. And as always, I'm joined by Billy, who is our head of wine. We have a great episode for everyone today as we're about to launch our White Burgundy collection. This is a highly anticipated collection, and we're excited to go over some of the highlights for that collection with you all. And later on, Billy will also give a few details about a trip that he and our two co-founders recently took to the UK and specifically London and the area surrounding London to tour some of our storage facilities and to meet with a few of our merchant partners um, and other partners of the company. We have a lot of great information about how we think about selecting wines, especially how we thought about selecting the wines in our white burgundy collection, and also a lot of the kind of behind the scenes considerations when we think about wine storage and the infrastructure behind that. So we're excited to share a little bit about that now, but first I'll discuss our white burgundy collection. This is a really exciting collection for us because it's our first collection of all white wines. Um, These are excellent wines from Burgundy. The collection is priced at $30 per share. It's $138,000 in total value with 4,600 total shares. There are 109 total bottles represented in this collection. Um, And this collection is really special because it features top vintages that were in fairly limited supply. And we will let Billy talk a little bit more about that. But we have also some extremely rare bottlings as well in this collection that you just can't find many places on the market. And we're excited to feature in this offering. So it's an excellent way to get diversified into the white wines of Burgundy. And I'll let Billy take it away with some higher level updates. Yeah, thank you, Brady. Just jumping in there. I really think first, uh, you had me thinking there for a second, is it our first 100% white collection? I guess it is. I guess we had a champagne collection, which is technically, you know, yeah, sparkling yeah. white, but it's certainly our full, <laughs> our first still white collection. And made um, all from white grapes, white wine grapes, that is. That's true. That's true. I think all of these are 100% Chardonnay far as I know. Um, no, they definitely all are. But yeah, so what, what's really interesting about this collection is, is you kind of hit it on the nose. It spans a number of different vintages and it also spans you know a number of different bottles. I think most people will, will look at this and see that it's one of our longer lists. We have some that are you know 12 bottles here. We have some that are 11. We have some three, three bottles sorry, not 11, we have a, a few ones actually in this collection. And what's interesting when you get down to the white burgundy side of things, before we even dive into the key points is there's not a ton of the highest end white burgundy available from the top tier producers. Overall, like by, by pure acres planted, there's more Chardonnay planted in burgundy than there is red grapes. But when it comes to the very top tier wines, there, there's just not a ton of white burgundy made on on a regular basis and then when it comes to the top tier again there's been a number of and we'll we'll get into this limiting factors due to the weather and some other basically limiting i guess in terms of demand and weather factors that have been reducing the supply that's available for most folks to be able to get their hands on any large quantities of white burgundy so what that's led us to do is we did a, a bunch of digging a bunch of research and tried to source out the best bottles we could and kind of piece together collection. And to get to the size of a collection, it took a lot of different wines to combine. So diving right in here, let's get into the key points. The first thing I kind of hinted at earlier, Burgundy as a region has been really hot lately, um, especially over the, I mean, 
going back multiple years, but even 2021 was kind of, you know, even more fuel on the fire. The region as a whole with LiveX's index last year was up about 30%. With that, it's driven heavily by the red burgundies. But what we saw last year was more and more of the percentage of total market share being taken up by white burgundy with the volume of white burgundies traded in 2021 up 200% since 2010. So white burgundy is taking on more and more of the share. Burgundy as a whole is increasing in value. So what's, or the, the, the wines tend to be increasing in value, at least we've been seeing over the past few years. And what's, what's interesting to me there is there's opportunity in that some of the red wines are going to be pricing themselves out of certain markets. And what that is doing is it's having investors turn to different alternatives. So whether that be Premier Cruz over Grand Cru in the red, or if it's turning towards the white wines. And white wines have historically in Burgundy been really highly sought after and valued throughout history. But what, what kind of happened in the late 90s and early 2000s, there's a thing called premature oxidation or premox. And some of the white burgundies were kind of oxidizing a little earlier than, that, than they normally were. So basically picture a, a younger bottle, only a few years old, it would be showing as if it was many decades old, just not aging properly. So what that kind of did at the early 2000s was kind of put a little damper on investing in white burgundy as a sector. And what we've seen in the past 20 years is the growers kind of wrap their minds a little bit more around what potentially could be causing this premox. And while no single one source has kind of been found, it's it's kind of universally agreed upon that the, the past 10, 15 vintages have largely solved the problem. So again, white burgundy is kind of coming back to the forefront. It's kind of more this underdog in burgundy. And as the whole region is rising, it's just now really starting to gain a little bit more momentum. In terms of actual overall supply of white wines coming from burgundy versus reds is it uh lower for whites in general i would assume that they're making less chardonnay overall than pinot noir from the region is that right well what's interesting is and i can pull up the exact stats i was just listening to the Berghounds kind of guide to burgundy he does this deep dive overview over this 10-hour book or audiobook and and from what i and that reminded me, and I, I've double-checked in my various resources, is that actually more Chardonnay is planted than Pinot Noir. And you have to remember, this goes all the way back to, you know, village level, regional level wine. So I think the actual amount of wine produced is very, is close. But in terms of the, the vines planted, it's more Chardonnay. But you'd be surprised about actually how much Chardonnay is made in the region, even though, like I was saying, there, there's fewer Grand Cru and premier cru sites that allow white wines to be made and certainly less grand cru that even are, are white wine only so it's really when you get to the top tier you see a lot less yeah i mean I, you know i've been familiar for a while with the, the quality of the top tier white wines coming from burgundy i was just a little bit surprised at some of the individual bottle prices coming from the region especially when you look into like the drc montrachet and, and wines like this i just wasn't uh, familiar until we dove into some of the specifics of this collection i started looking through the the asset list on it that i was just surprised at you know the price that some of these bottles were fetching and maybe that was just uh naivety or, or ignorance but you know i didn't know if you had an answer to based on just production and supply why that might have been the case i mean obviously these wines are you know they come to typically most of them will come to drinkability or maturity a little bit sooner than the pinot noirs of the region so you know is, is that an indication of just overall bottle price early on in aging? 
All right. Sorry. Say that the last part again. Your the bottle price just due to them yeah, getting consumed yeah, just, earlier. Exactly. Yeah. The wines are typically consumed earlier. They come to you know drinking age a little bit sooner. Is that why we see you know outsized prices on some of these white wines even early in their age? I was just taken aback, like I said, by the the price of some of these bottles. Yeah. So I would say what you're what you're kind of seeing is is just the macro rise of Burgundy as a whole. And I think it's when you start getting these certain names, these certain producers like the DRCs, we can get into that, our, our exceptional Vendage Septomains bottle. Um, that's just a, a one-off. But it, it's basically that there's so few or so little of these top producers' wines from these certain white wine uh, vineyards, really. So I, I think that's really why. Um, and yes, it is true that like, while while they still need you know for the best years and the best wines and the best years they still need decade decades probably you know 15 20 years to show their best stuff white wines are typically drank earlier from burgundy than reds so i think that that does have something to do with them but i think it again just goes back to kind of the the quantity made and then we can talk about a little bit more about how the the climate has restricted the quantities yeah um a little bit more but um so so more more chardonnay made in the region overall but less grand cru chardonnay than grand cru pinot noir that's, yeah, that's the overall yeah. story about quantity, right? Yeah, and remind me next year or not next year, next week. I can I can follow up with the exact stat from certain books, but I, I just pulled up quickly here, and this is from a, a Burgundy website, and it's basically saying that forty three percent of Grand Cru wines are white, or, or Grand Cru vineyards are white vineyards. So um, that's almost sixty percent reds, and if you think about it, only like one point four, one point five percent of the total production area total wines produced are grand crew that just makes it you know mm-hmm. it's it's less than a percent of you know, total uh, area in the region yeah yeah are yeah. are the white ones so but then yeah. when you get when you get down more to the appalachian villages and appalachian regional it, it's about you know it tends to be more i, I think the appalachian for village level wine is like more like 75 percent yeah wines. Uh, yeah okay. sure okay very good yeah and it's kind of if you think about it too similar to bordeaux it's, you know, when everybody, there's many people who think Bordeaux, they think Cabernet Sauvignon when Merlot is, you know, 60% mm-hmm. of the wines that come from the region are Merlot. So it's one of those things where it's like, you have to look at the, the broader area and see what the, the macro and Appalachians are planting rather than just the top, top tier. Yeah. Good note. Cool. So we'll, we'll just quickly go into the key points here. Again, Burgundy's gaining momentum. White wines are gaining share. Uh, second, the frost, basically frost and other climate climate um, issues have caused very small yields for a number of years now. 2016 saw horrible frost events, 2019 saw bad frost events. And even last year, there was bad frost early in the year. Um, and this year we saw a little bit of late season snow, but it doesn't appear to be too much damage throughout the region as a whole. But what this has really meant is certain regions, frost and hail, Hail has a bit as much of an issue, but each of these can tend to be really localized in their damage. And we've seen certain white wine vineyards in particular, especially in 2016, Montmartre was really, really hard hit, um, as we'll discuss a little bit more in a second, leading to very small yields, which means, like we were saying earlier, there's less of these Grand Cru white wines, even less of, you know, and then these restrictions coming out and making even less of those. So it's cool to think about that you know, you can kind of take all of these things into account. So right now we see more demand for Burgundy than we've ever seen, you know, in the past 20, 30 years, these past you know, couple of years, past five years have been outrageous in terms of demand. 
we're seeing less wine made just due to natural restrictions. So what we're kind of seeing are these optimal conditions for, and you've seen these like burgundy prices have been skyrocketing overall. Um, and now white wines, it's, it's really the optimal time to kind of, from our point of view, try to start getting in the mix before these wines become even harder to find due to these natural lack of supply. And I think recently you and the, you know, our wine advisory committee have done a really good job at paying attention to, you know, some of these climatic pressures on supply and demand and production quantity and, and stuff like that in these regions. And I think we've seen a lot of, we've uh, been able to acquire a lot of really top wines from excellent vintages at, you know, sometimes really advantageous pricing because we're so focused on identifying those kind of tertiary features of the market and like movers in the marketplace. I think we've done a really good job. You guys have done a really good job at that uh, recently. And I think that this collection exemplifies our focus on not only going out and capturing wines from great producers, but also from the top vintages and from vintages where there are kind of these other pressures that put constraints on supply. Yeah. So speaking of those types of vintages, we'll talk about this exceptional vendage de sept domain bottle we have from 2016. This is a really unique bottle of Montmartre. And it's from a unique year. So 2016 was soft frost all across of Burgundy. Montrachet was super hard hit. And when you when you think of frost from a wine perspective, late season frost can have an effect on the grapes themselves. It can impact you know, final ripening. There could be a lot of issues. Early season frost, they basically can happen at two phases. One is right after bud burst, the dormant vines kind of wake up and they, they've sprouted some leaves. They haven't quite flowered yet. And frost can come in and kind of just kill those buds. The next step would be after the vines have flowered, they're looking to kind of have this time period where the flowers are being pollinated and the fruits being set. If frost hits then, that's even worse because the vines are kind of along more than their maturity. So if those flowers are killed, that is also a big problem. And if the buds or flowers are killed, what that really does is it just means that that little but I guess each bud, you can think of each bud or each flower as kind of almost leading to a single bunch of grapes or a little actual physical grape. So every time one of these buds are killed, that means just less grapes are grown for that year. So what happened in 2016, early season frost killed a bunch of the buds. So the rest of the growing year is fine. So the grapes that did were produced, created excellent wines, really great wines, just in very small quantities compared to normal years. So what happened in Montmartre was this vineyard, as most Burgundy vineyards are, is chopped up and owned by multiple different growers. Each of these growers tends to make a barrel or two every year, depending on how much wine or how much land they have. Sometimes it's more than that. So people like, or producers like Montmarche, Coplefond, Guillaume, Amiel, I'm sorry, <laughs> and Laflave, all of them make their own wines each year. This year, none of them had enough grapes to make even a single barrel of wine. So they all worked together and were able to combine their grapes and they made two single barrels of wine 683 total bottles. These were there. There was a couple different sizes of bottles made. So they had technically 500 bottles that they gave away just to friends and family, really. And then they had a couple others that they held back for the the producers themselves. So each bottle actually, and this is really interesting on our, our trip to London here, I was lucky enough to go to our storage facility and actually see this bottle and, and hold it each bottle is labeled with the person's name that it was intended for. So that's that friend or family. So I can't remember the exact name. I can look on our, our photo here for ours, but it, it was for a guy named Jerome 
Bayard, I want to say, and I think I'm pronouncing that correct. But what's interesting is the fact that these were made in such small quantities, they were able to make custom labels for each of these wines. And that's, you know, something that you, you might see the price tag on this when only a handful of wines were made the whole year. Our wine was made for a guy named Jerome Biard, B-I-L-L-A-R-D. So that's just really interesting to think about top producers in the world, all combining their top fruit and coming up with just a handful of bottles that were just meant for family and friends. And we were able to get our hands on one of those. Yeah, and the, the amount of the total collection value that that wine takes up is pretty outsized, right? At 36.45% of the total collection value. I'm not sure we've had a bottle thus far in any of our collection releases that has taken up that much of a single collection. Yeah, no, not not a single bottle of wine. We've had a bunch of you know whiskeys that have been expensive. We had the set of uh, DRC Romani Conti that, you know, as a, a three pack took up a bunch, but no, not, not a single wine. And it just goes to speak to this wine of what the unique year was, you know, with these seven domains is seven of the most well-known domains in Burgundy. So it's, it's kind of the power of multiple different wines all, all into this one. And this isn't, it's, this isn't like, this is a common practice, right. For these producers to collaborate in that way. So, you know, maybe this is a once in a lifetime, once in a couple centuries that something like this might happen in the wine world. Yeah. And, and even if they say had another bad year and they had to combine grapes again, what, what is unique about this year is that you're never going to have frost exactly the same way twice. So the combination of this, a majority of the fruit in this one is DRC Montrachet, I and mean, there are little percentages from the other ones. And when I say majority, I think it's between 50 and 60%, but the, the combination. So if they ever were to have a bad frost in Montrachet again and, and make another vintage of this, of people combining grapes, is it's never going to be exactly the same. So it's, it's really a once in a lifetime bottle. You're never going to have one made the same way, um, the same producers maybe not be included. It really is just a product of a unique year and it is kind of a just a once in a lifetime kind of bottle. And this collection and the situation that we see and the constraints placed on supply in Burgundy and particularly with white Burgundy in, in the past, you know, th- this past year and with these vintages that we have in this collection, collectors are after these wines, consumers are after these wines. And actually one of the you know, earlier conversations I had with one of our master sommelier connections, the first thing he said to me when I was talking to him about our platform was like, man, you guys have to get white burgundy. You have to get white burgundy. And so it's really cool to be able to deliver that to our investors now and our users and, you know, provide access to that asset class. I'm excited about that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm happy to do so as well. And we, we took a, an interesting approach here by having a range of vintages as well. Right. Like I've been saying like white burgundy, the demand is going up, the supply is going down. So I wouldn't put it past us to, you know, do another mm-hmm. Burgundy collection in the next coming year or so, just because it's, you know, all of these factors are going so well. But it, this one's purposely built to kind of give everybody a, a full taste or full access in diversifying across a number of vintages and a number of special bottles. Exactly. Yeah. Like in the wines, well, particularly the wine world, I was about to say wine and spirits, but in the wine world, diversification isn't just region. It isn't just producer. It's also things like vintage, right? Because like we've talked about climate can change so drastically that it's not the same to own DRC from, you know, now. And then also 15 years ago, these are different uh, growth profiles. They're different quote unquote, like market risk profiles. If you want to, you know, talk about, you know, historical value and things like that, that way. So yeah, the fact that we're looking at all of those different factors, I think, you know, speaks to how 
intentional we've been when we've designed these collections. Yeah. And I think we've mentioned this before, but we're as a company always looking for the most optimal time to exit some of these collections and you're, you're never forced to buy. If there's a great offer, we'd be open to one. So the idea is we never want to be a forced seller. So if you have wines from multiple different vintages, you're not trying to sell all uh, right. all of the single vintage at a single time when it comes to something unique like white burgundy. So when it comes to something unique like these, we do have a bunch of different price points. So maybe something like the Domaine La Flave 97 um, is going to be something that would be opportune. And, you know, it's, it's probably right in about a sweet drinking window pretty soon. So that might be something, you know, we can kind of stagger on as people are kind of running low on their white burgundy supplies due to this lack of supply, we'll have something at every drinking stage for people in the years to come. So it's really kind of looking at what does that lack of supply mean for people who are consuming mature burgundy now? What does that lack of supply mean for people who want to consume mature burgundy, you know, in five or 10 years? So we've taken all of that into account when choosing the years and these wines. Yeah, I think that that's really helpful, especially for folks who, you know, maybe come from a different asset class and, you know, you, it's important to be informed on the different pressures on the market and, you know, the different considerations that we make when we're evaluating these bottles, right? It's not just region, it's not just producers. So that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, again, when we're thinking about vintages too, last note on this for Burgundy is so few, so little is made each year that it is reasonable to think people will be drinking through and looking for new stuff. It's there, there are regions where they're you know, we're, we're talking about like hundreds to th- like single digit thousands of bottles made of some of these wines each year. Whereas like, while some vintages may be heavily consumed of other regions, you know, when the top tier Bordeaux are making 15 to 20,000 bottles a year, it's not as easy to try to say like, okay, we'll, we'll have some vintages that people might be looking to drink. Cause there's always going to be drinking age. Some of these older wines are from more producing regions, but it's interesting. These, these wines are going to be coming into perfect drinking stages at different points. And I think the demand is, is skyrocketing. So we'll, we'll be interested to see if what people are interested in consuming or purchasing from, from Vint down the line. It'll be exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about now that we've kind of touched on the highlights and stuff. You can talk about, you know, a little bit more about these bottles that you were able to see when we were in, when you guys were in London, as well as some of the storage facilities that you got to tour there and, and, and just give a little bit more insight onto what it takes to keep some of these wines in pristine condition. Yeah. So I'll quickly touch on our London trip. First, we, we spent about five days in London, nonstop meetings. We met with a bunch of supplier partners, our advisor who's based in the UK. And then we, we toured two of our facilities that are the two main ones where we keep most of our wine from all of our collections, actually. So the first one was Octavian. It's out um, west of London, about an hour's train ride in this area called Chippenham, outside of this town called Chippenham. It's basically just picture sheep farms, rolling green hills, and there's two types of facilities. One is this underground bunker that is really well insulated, and it's a world-class wine wine storage facility, which is where we're going to be keeping a bunch of ours. And the other one is basically next to this airfield and what looks from the outside, like these low hanging air hangers, airplane hangers. And they're basically purpose built. Well, one was actually an air hanger that was retrofitted. Another one was that was purpose built for, for storing wine. And it's interesting because you're driving up to these, you're in the middle of nowhere. Our cab driver couldn't even find the road to turn off on. And we finally found the right road. We make our way up and there's a facility surrounded by a barbed wire gate 
barbed wire fences, like very high fences. You have to go through a security point. They have to, you know, look in your bags, make sure what you're bringing in. It was amazing. It was, it was really secure, very isolated. You felt more like you're going to a military compound than a wine, wine storage facility. And once we passed security and got our, our visibility vests and everything, we, we got a tour and it was basically just like a, a almost picture like an Amazon warehouse, but you know, very, very tall, tall shelves, but everything is uniquely organized just to maintain wine. So the, the humidity is checked multiple times a day, both by hand and by sensor. Same with the temperature. They go around with actual thermometers because they want to double check what their systems are showing. The floor was, was polished and leveled off to minimize any sort of variation or any side of sort of possible seismic issues that would come or unevenness that would impact with seismic issues. And the shelves are all custom built to basically be as as stable and supportive as possible. So that that was an impressive, expansive location and and kind of mind boggling in terms of just it's, it's pure, I I guess how far out there it is. It's just, it's just out in the middle of nowhere. And it's, it's probably one of the safest places you could find for one. The next spot we went to was, was uh, our other partner's storage over with Vine. And this was a another custom-built facility. They share space with London City Bond, which is another competing always with Octavian as the top wine storage facility in all of the UK. And this is more situated in a more industrial area near a port, which is important because wine coming in and out has very little distance to travel before it's, you know, again, unloaded and just hitting this perfect conditions for keeping wine. So again, it's humidity controlled, temperature controlled, and we, we got to tour there and they're there. They are actually taking people to take out a couple of the bottles we have from our, from some boxes. I got to, you know, look at the, the Molmerche, uh, the DRC Molmerche. We got to look at the, the Sept Domain bottle, which was really interesting. We got to look at um, a few of our others as well. And it was really interesting just to see the, again, the, the thoroughness and the care that all of our, all of our partners are taking with these bottles to make sure that they're, not only received, cataloged, and reviewed for any any potential issues, you know, when, when they get them, everything's photographed, the labels are analyzed, the the capsules are analyzed, the fill levels are analyzed. So everything goes through at both here and Octavian, at Vine and Octavian, very thorough inspections. And then they're they're basically treated like small children. They're just so carefully handled and then they're put on their shelves and everybody knows exactly where they are due to their serial numbers and yeah, it's it's mind-boggling how technologically advanced and thorough these places are just to take care of wine. Yeah, just you know, for kind of our listeners' reference, the reason why we store such an outsized portion of our wines in the UK is you know really to kind of fulfill the goal that we have to store our wines as closely to where we're looking to both acquire our collections, but also to potentially resell our collections. And so that's kind of a strategic move that we've made. And then the other. A minority percentage of our wines are stored split between a facility in Washington, D.C. and also in Napa Valley. And so, yeah, uh, is it still about 80% of our wines, 85% of our wines stored in the U.K., Billy? Yeah, yeah, 85, closer to 90% as we continue to launch these collections here. And yeah, so the reason we, one of the reasons, like Brady said, we keep them there is for basically for the Asian market and the European market, everybody tends to like wines that have not left Europe. Asia is a little bit more open to buying European wine from the US, but Europeans are not as open to buying wines that have made to the US and made their way back. They'd rather just buy 
if they can find the wines in the UK or still in Europe. So we keep it there for optionality. So we have all markets available to us for sale and, and just are aiming to continue to work with the best partners we can to keep everything in, in the world-class facilities that are the, that are available. Yeah, that's awesome. That, that's really, really good information because we do get a lot of questions about things like storage and insurance and just, you know, hey, who has these wines? <laughs> and we're coming up on, you know, when, when we're in the two, two and a half, three million dollar in total assets on the Vint platform, you know, we start to get more and more of those questions as, you know, we have a large quantity of wines under management. And, it, you know, those details and the infrastructure behind it is really important to our investors. Yeah. And if anybody has any specific questions and wants to talk about the, any of the facilities more, I'm happy to answer, you know, directly. You can set up some time to chat with me or just shoot me an email at billy at vint.co. Yeah. Thanks, Billy. As always, thank you for tuning in to the Vint Podcast. Uh, we hope you have a great rest of the week and we hope you'll tune in to check out our White Burgundy collection. Of course, like Billy said, reach out to us if you have any questions. You can email me at brady at vint.co. Be happy to set some time to talk about the collection and even more broadly to talk about how you can diversify really easily with Vint and how we can help walk you through that. Thinking about producers, different regions, different vintages, climactic trends, broader market trends. We can talk you through all of that and would love to chat anytime. So thanks for tuning in. Reach out to us whenever is right for you and we'll see you next time. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal tax or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.